which we hope you do, would you turn open to James chapter 4? James chapter 4, we're in the middle of a series called The Ten Steps of a Peacemaker. We've, we've uh, completed five of the steps. This morning we're going to look at three of the next ones. James chapter 4, we're going to look at the first half of verse 9. I've got to tell you to um, maybe perhaps prepare you for this sermon in all seriousness. It's been a really difficult week in getting ready for this sermon. So uh, probably the weightiest sermon I've ever preached. Our content is probably the poorest thing that I do. And until this week, I really didn't even know too much how to do it. We're talking about repentance. Friends, I want to tell you right up front, in all honesty, I think the majority of us really don't understand or practice biblical repentance. And if you want to know why your life returns to conflict, and if you want to know why sin continues to grab hold and dominate, I think our answer is probably going to be in this sermon. The hard part's doing it, the easy part's hearing it. The world needs peacemakers, amen? The church needs Christians who know how to make peace. Our hearts war with one another. Let's just be honest. There are no exceptions. They war with one another for desires that have become illicit. We leave our trusting, faithful relationship with God to cavort with the world. We've become God's enemies. We pick up our fists to Him. But God loves us. Amen. He envies intensely. He wants a relationship that is marked with peace. And so he begins to array himself with all of his might to oppose us and our pride. And he gives us more grace. He gives grace upon grace. Friends, listen, the very moment that we repent of our pride and we humble ourselves. But how do we do this? How do we become peacemakers? See, James gave the early Christians ten commands of a peacemaker. And I want you to remember this. You ready? I want you to remember this. I want you to put it into your brain if you need to. Write it down if you must. But remember this, this statement. Here it is. God never commands what he will not enable us to obey. Can you amen that? God never commands. Did I say that right? I think you just amen something I didn't even say right. God always... (laughs) Who said that? Was that you, Millen? Let me just put it this way. God never commands what He will not enable us to obey. In other words, God always enables us to obey His commands. James gave these ten commands. And here they are. They're ten steps to becoming a peacemaker. Number one, we submit to God. 
We submit to God. Which means that we voluntarily step back in rank. The word is a military word. It's command, which means that I've stepped out of my natural rank that I belong in because I want to be the general. I want to be the captain. I want to be in charge. And so I step out of rank. But to submit to God means that I voluntarily step back in rank and I get off the throne in worship. Friends, if you've not learned anything yet in this series, at least know this and let me give you an example. Have you ever had somebody from our church over to your home? And while they were there, they began to pick apart leadership. They began to cut down people in our church. They began to spread slander and gossip and judgment and criticism. Friends, i got to tell you something, because I hate it when I do that, and I hate it when anybody else does this. At that moment, you should be developing the redemptive eyes to know that that person has climbed up the throne and sat down where only God belongs and is trying to rule the world and rule those around them. God doesn't like that, by the way. And so when we submit to God, when you have the courage to be able to say to your friend over to your home, I don't think that pleases God. And I think you need to come off the throne. Then you're moving that person toward peace. You're moving them to come off the throne. And then second step is we stand Fast with God. That's what the word resist means. It's a, another military word. It means to take the fight to the right source. The right source, friends, James says, is the devil. The name the devil means one who separates. You see, the devil wants to separate us from one another. He loves it when I'm fighting with you. He loves it when my marriage is having conflict. He loves it when your teens are angry and they won't talk. That's what the devil does. He separates you from one another and he separates us from God. And so to resist the devil is to say, no longer will you separate me. I come back to you, O God. I worship you at the foot of your throne and I stand fast with you. And we come near to God. Number three, we pray. We come near to God. He will come near to us. And as we approach him, do you remember from last week, that there's a bronze laver that is a type of Christ. In other words, the bronze basin that held the water that the priests washed their hands and washed their feet with. That bronze basin pointed forward to the one who will take away our sins. But that bronze basin sat on a bronze laver, sat on a bronze base that was made from the Israelite women's polished mirrors. In other words, when the priest would approach this laver to wash their hands and their feet, reflected figuratively are their sins. Friends, when we approach the word of God, it reveals to us the polished mirrors shows us our sin. In step four is we confess those sins. We agree with what God speaks to us through his word. We wash our hands. And then finally, last week, we looked at uh, what it means to purify our hearts, you double-minded. We, the word means to commit to single-mindedness because here's what double-mindedness mindedness is. It's when I love God, but I love the world. I want to love both. 
And so one time I'm walking faithfully, the next time I'm walking unfaithfully. One time I'm worshiping God, the next I'm worshiping myself. This is double-mindedness. And James says, move, purify your hands or your hearts to single-mindedness. Commit yourself to follow after the one who loves you in a covenantal, faithful relationship. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, which I'm hoping you're doing, you should be probably saying to yourself, well, how do we purify our hearts? That sounds really good, Pastor Tim, but how do we, how do we do this? The answer, friends, is biblical repentance. And repentance is a discipline that is well practiced by peacemakers. If you and I are to become peacemakers, we will be practiced in disciplined and repentance. But let's understand what repentance is before we look at these next few steps. Because probably most of us in here think of repentance and we define it automatically as a change of mind or you're going in this direction and you repent doing a 180 and going in the opposite direction. Let me give you a more biblical and robust version of a definition of repentance. Francis Fuller writes, to repent is to accuse and condemn ourselves. But Pastor Tim, we don't do that. We have a mediator. We have the Spirit of God and we have Jesus Christ who lived to make intercession for us. We're no longer under shame and condemnation. Friends, to biblically repent is to, to accuse and condemn ourselves when those polished mirrors reveal the sin. To charge upon ourselves the desert of hell to take part with God against ourselves and to justify Him in all that He does against us. Friends, what is repentance? Listen, to be ashamed and confounded for our sins. Can you imagine anybody before the throne of God in full biblical repentance who does not feel shame for their sins? More than likely, you can't imagine that. Because if you're like me, I've done it a lot of times. At least I thought I did. To have them ever in our eyes and at all times upon our hearts that we may be in daily sorrow for them, to part with our right hands and, and eyes, that is, with those pleasurable sins which have been as dear to us as our lives, so as never to have to do with them more and to hate them so as to destroy them as things which by, our, by nature we are wholly disinclined to. We are naturally, for we naturally love and think well of ourselves, hide our deformities, lessen and excuse our faults, indulge ourselves in the things that please us, are mad upon our lusts and follow them, though to our own destruction. Here's what Fuller is saying. Fuller is saying that in the course of biblically repenting, this is what's happening. This is what God wants. God doesn't want you to have a high opinion of yourselves. He wants you to have a real opinion of yourselves. An opinion that says, I've fallen short of the glory of God. That's not a laughable matter. An opinion that says, I'm warring with you. I'm in a battle with you, which means that I don't love you. I love me. And it means that I don't even love God. I'm an adulterer. How, how would you ever imagine and unfortunately, maybe there's somebody here that can. But how would you imagine coming home 
to see your spouse in bed with another lover. Can you imagine the horror of that moment? Because that's what James says we're doing when I'm committed to my own desires more than I'm committed to God's. I'm an adulterer. And I've said, God, I'm no longer interested in your way of living. I'm interested in mine, so serve me and move over and let me get on the throne. Now, how many have ever seen conflict like that? To repent of that is to have sober-minded seriousness. Friends, when God shows us the idolatrous desires of our hearts that are the wellspring of our conflict, nothing less, listen, nothing less than a response of grieving, mourning, and wailing will ever purify our hearts towards single-mindedness and produce the repentance that's necessary to be a peacemaker. So with this understanding in mind, by the way, that was the fun introduction. Let's see what James means as he commands us to grieve, mourn, and wail. Here's step number six on our road to becoming peacemakers. Here it is. Be broken. Be broken. That's what the word grieve really means. It's a word whose meaning is much different than most understand. Friends, grieve means to be, listen, to grieve means to be miserable. Now, if I were to stop right there, I've got you all with me because we all know when you're grieving, you're miserable. But here's what it means to biblically grieve. It means to be miserable, listen, and to know it. It's one thing to be in a wretched state of sin, but it's another thing to know it. Here's what grieving means. If you want to take it apart and see the redemptive nature of it, here's what it means. It means to think on what we are doing to the point that truth seeps in to conviction and conviction catalyzes the emotions to produce change. That's what it means to grieve. Grieve doesn't mean, friends, to feel bad. Grieve means that I'm going to think on this. I'm going to stay in front of these polished mirrors of the word of God. I'm going to let God expose my sin in the midst of this conflict until finally the truth of it seeps in that I'm an adulterer, that I'm a warrior, that I'm an enemy of God. And he's opposing me and that yet he has grace upon grace to give to me the moment I, I humble myself. But it's to sit there and let that truth seep in until finally I'm motivated Toward change. It's a voluntary soul affliction. When's the last time that you ever said to your loved ones, I've seen my sin and I'm afflicting my soul? Nobody speaks like that. But friends, it's what it is. It's a voluntary soul affliction that kills the casual response to sin. I can't tell you how many times, unfortunately, in my own life, but how many times in other people's lives, that they sin and they dismiss it with an I'm sorry. See, in our family, we're trying to teach what redemptive forgiveness is. So if our children or if Denise and I do something accidentally to hurt the other, we didn't know that they had a bad day in school and so we make a joke of it, you know, just trying to make light of it, but it really hurts them. That's a, that's an I'm sorry moment, friends. 
I didn't mean to hurt my daughter. I didn't mean to hurt my children or my wife. And so we say sorry, but friends, listen. When I'm angry because they won't give me the respect I'm demanding and I can't get the control I want in my home, and so I resort to wrath and manipulation and demeaning and criticism and judgmentalism, when I resort to that, I'm sinning. And friends, Christ died for that. And now a sorry is a band-aid. It doesn't go redemptively deep enough. So now we teach our children, you need to come up and ask for forgiveness. Don't say sorry. They've gotten this to the point where they start to correct Denise and I, which I hate. (laughs) And then I get angry and have to ask them, forgive me again. But this is what we're talking about, to think on what we're doing to the point I'm motivated to move to change. The term we often use for grieving is brokenness. It's to be devastated that we're in such pursuit of our desires that we would break peace with others and with God. It's to linger over the truth that the warring heart is not a trusting heart. Friends, when we're warring with one another, we're not trusting God. Rather, it's a heart that's committed to the worship of, of ourself. God, our husband, for that's the way the Bible ta- calls him, our husband, our God, he's found us in that act of spiritual adultery. Friends, this is the awful truth of conflict. And James tells us, don't skip over it. Don't skim through it. Let it simmer until it leads us to see the whole truth. Listen, if we're going to be able to see in the polished mirror of God's word what it is we must confess, then we need to learn the discipline of grieving. Instead of cheap confession, is deep confession. Friends, if you had a large splinter of wood in your hand, And you go to dig it out, but you only get the tip and you say, you know what? It hurts too much to dig. I'm going to leave it in there. Then you're on your way to infection. And it's the same way spiritually. If there's a sin in there that God, by his word, has shown you, he's revealed it to you. And you say, you know what? I can't take it. I can't stand to see the sin. And I'm going to leave the base of the labor. I'm going to walk away and look at other people instead of myself. Friends, where you're headed is spiritual infection. You know what spiritual infection looks like? Bitterness. Anger. Hopelessness, hatred, depression, numbness in your relationships, among other things. And James says, grieve, be broken. Think on the truth that God has revealed in your own heart until it leads toward true repentance and transformation. But he's not done. He gives another step. He says, grieve, mourn. And wail. What's that word mourn mean? This is step number seven. It means to be sorrowful. There was an old preacher who was informed that a certain woman in his congregation had gotten joy in the Lord in one of his sermons. His penetrating question was, did she get any sorrow? You see, sorrow precedes joy. Brokenness precedes hopefulness. Grief precedes 
transformation. Jeremiah 5 says, Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown, that crown that we all love to wear, has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. You see, God brought them, brought Jeremiah, brought the people of Israel into sorrow so that it would lead them towards repentance. It's a call to godly sorrow that James gives. You know, I'm often asked, how can I know if this person who has hurt me so many times and is coming again with an apology, how do I know if they're truly repentant? How can I know if my teen means it when they ask for forgiveness and promise a change or that spouse who's fallen into that addiction again? How do we know if there's true repentance? I want to teach you seven ways to know how to recognize true repentance, godly sorrow. Will you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look at two verses, and I want you to remember this because this is a way that you can see if your own heart is headed towards repentance as well as other people's. This is Paul's second letter to the people of Corinth. His first letter was filled with condemnation, with instruction, with commandment. They were filled with strife. They were filled with division. He wrote a very, very difficult letter to them. And now he's writing a second letter because they responded in sorrow that led towards repentance. And here's what he's explaining. Chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. And here they are, seven of them. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. What do these mean? Let me fly through these briefly. Friends, godly sorrow produces seven fruit. And here they are. Number one, earnestness. What does earnestness mean? It means to make haste. It means to be quick about something. You see, godly sorrow, if a person really has godly sorrow, then it will move him or her to want to quickly change their heart and their ways and restore peace. That's what godly sorrow does with earnestness. There's no contemplation. There's no time necessary to consider. There's no, I'll deal with this the next time I see that person. The time is right now. Earnestness says today is the day of reconciliation. There's a seriousness and an urgency and the, and the believer that is filled with godly sorrow. But there's a second fruit and it's eagerness to clear yourself. You see, the polished mirror of God's word is revealed the unfaithful, warring heart of, of the ones in conflict. And it's, and it's produced a sorrow that if it's leading toward repentance, listen, will make him eager to make it right. Here's what I mean. And let me give you an example. It was worldly sorrow that seized the heart of Judas Iscariot and filled him with remorse, moving him to return the traitor's money, but then to punish himself through suicide. That's not godly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. But it was godly sorrow that moved Peter 
who wept bitterly after denying Jesus three times in the moment of his greatest need to leap off the boat and swim to shore when he recognized Jesus from a distance where he declared his love three times and became faithful to the point of martyrdom. That's biblical, godly sorrow. It was an eagerness to clear himself. This is the effort to restore the damaged relationship to one of peacefulness. Friends, listen, if you have a conflict and you've not yet tried to reconcile it, if God's producing godly sorrow in your heart that's going to lead to repentance, there will be an eagerness to go back in an unsettledness until you do. Paul goes on, he says, your heart will be filled with indignation. The heart filled with godly sorrow hates the sin that is discovered in its heart. Friends, listen, what is indignation? It's a holy displeasure. It's an outrage. Listen, this is, this is weird. It's not, not something we're used to. It's an outrage over my discovered sin. I mean, how many of you, honestly, don't raise your hand, how many of you have seen your sin revealed by the word of God and hated it and been in outrage over it? That's what this means to be filled with indignation. If you want to know if somebody's filled with godly sorrow, somebody who has come back to you and asked for forgiveness and your antlers of uh, suspicion are wondering, well, do they really mean it? Are they filled with indignation? Do they see their sin and do they hate it? If you're not seeing that, friends, they're not working towards repentance. This is much different from worldly sorrow, which is a grief for me. It's centered on me, not because of my sin against God, but my consequences, which are unpleasant. It's my aching of embarrassment. It's my filled with self-pity. Friends, those filled with godly sorrow hate their sin. Paul goes on, alarm. You know, I walked a couple who was, who were saddled with conflict through James chapter 4, and I just sat there and I watched. You know, the Word of God is living and active. If you're wielding the Word of God, you really don't need to add into anything. It will do its job. And so as I'm walking this couple through James chapter 4, which I've done dozens and dozens of times with people, I watched them turn to each other and just shake their head as the full realization of what was in their hearts was laid bare to see. The word of God illuminated that. Friends, warring with one another over illicit desires, becoming unfaithful to the one who died for us. Friends, listen, and battling against him, it's insane. When you're sober-minded, you would never do this. But when we're in the grip of sin, it looks right. And when we come off the throne and we approach him through Christ and we see our hearts through his word, is you know this, it's like a fog that's lifted from our eyes and we can see finally the true landscape of war. And when we come off that throne, it's frightening to see what our sinful flesh is capable of. It's terrifying to see God's forces arrayed against us on the landscape, driving us to brokenness and restoration. It's an alarm, a sorrow. The godly, sorrowful person will be filled 
with alarm when they see the sin of their hearts. There's also a longing, Paul says. How beautiful it is when God gives us a longing to see a broken relationship restored. My own sister, her husband had an affair with her on her best friend. She came home. They had two children at, this, at that time. She came home to see two suitcases packed and on their way out the door with my brother-in-law carrying them with a note left behind in the kitchen counter. Had an affair with her best friend and got her pregnant. They were Christian school teachers up in New York. For me as a young high school student, to be in the kitchen when my mom answered that phone call from my sister to let her know what had happened and to feel your soul plummet in grief, but to watch over the course of the next several years to see the longing that God gave, the sorrow that my brother-in-law had that said, we want to make this right. The consequences were great. They lost their job. They moved the state away. And it took them years to recover through counseling. But today their marriage is better than it ever was before that occurred. Because God put a longing of sorrowfulness into their hearts that led them towards repentance and restoration. But Paul says, if you're going to have godly sorrow, friends, listen, be discerning. If you've got somebody that says they're repenting, then they're going to have a concern, which means zeal. It's a holy effort to get rid of the sin in their hearts. It's a, it's a desired and effort to grow in the disciplines of the Lord. Zeal is working hard at reforming our hearts. This is what Colossians chapter 3 says. Listen to this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earth, earthly nature. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. There's a zeal. There's a work that a sorrowful person is willing to do to restore a relationship. But let me give you one more. There's a readiness to see justice done. You see, truly repentant people are willing to make restitution for the wrongs that they have committed. They accept responsibility. If you've got somebody that's repenting but will not accept and will defend and justify and blame other people, friends, they're not repentant. They're not yet sorrowful. Millionaire Frederick Charrington owned England's Charrington Brewery. He was multi-millionaire. There was one time that Charrington and his friends were walking down the streets of London when all of a sudden out the door of a bar or a pub came this drunken man staggering with this woman dressed in rags, emaciated and thin, trying to hold him up. And she kept crying to him, come home, come home. And if you won't come home, give me some coins because the children can't eat and I haven't ate in a week. True story, friends. The drunken man reared his fist back and struck her as hard as he could, knocking her to the ground. Charrington, who writes about this, ran over and restrained this drunken man, putting his hands behind his back until the police could, could, could be there to, to take him away and his friends minister to the woman on the floor. And he was ministering to this woman when he happened to look up in the, the window of this pub and there says, we serve Charrington Ale. 
Let me read to you what he wrote. The multimillionaire brewer was suddenly shaken to the core of his being. When I saw that sign, I was stricken just as surely as Paul on the Damascus Road. Here was the source of my family wealth, and it was producing untold human misery before my own eyes. Then and there I pledged to God that not another penny of that money should ever come to me. You know what? History reveals that Frederick Charrington became one of the most well-known temperance activists in all of England. He renounced his share of the family fortune, and he devoted the rest of his life to the ministry of freeing men and women from the curse and prison of alcoholism. Friends, listen. Godly sorrow produces in us a readiness to make things right. What's the result of all these seven fruit? Paul says in verse 11, at every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent. That word means pure or clean. You proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Friends, listen, if you've got somebody that says they're repentant or if you've become repentant, then these fruit will be evident. And at every point you will want to prove yourselves innocent. Godly sorrow, godly mourning has the power to move us toward repentance, which is a change in heart. It's the making, friends, of a pure heart. But there's one more step we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to be brief. Look at that third word or that fourth word in the first part of chapter 4, verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. James tells us to wail, which isn't just, listen, it's not just a shedding of tears. Isaiah twenty-two twelve describes this. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail. Here's what it looks like. It's an expression of grief to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. So wailing is an external expression of grief. Friends, if you are moving towards becoming a peacemaker, if your heart is filled with godly sorrow and you're moving towards repentance, there will be an expression, there must be an expression of grief. See, wailing was part of Jewish funerals as even professional wailers were hired to be able to precede the coffin out of town to its site of burial. You see, wailing accompanies repentance, listen, as our fleshly desires are put to death. The problem with many of us, why we ask for forgiveness and then turn back to the sin, is because we don't yet know how to grieve and mourn and wail. We don't know how to sit in front of that mirror until a truth seeps in. We don't know how to be filled with godly sorrow until it moves us to repentance. And friends, we don't know how to express publicly our grief. We're privatistic. How many of you share your worst sins with other people? You trust them enough to say, I need your help. I can't come out of this by myself. If there's any hope of restoration, if there's any hope of repentance, if there's any hope of change, I need your help. Wailing, friends, is the emotional element of repentance. And it's the water, listen, that catalyzes, that chemically changes, so to speak, 
the concrete so that it can harden and to resolve. Wailing says, I'm grieving. Wailing says, I'm remorseful. And wailing says, I need help. It won't let us see our sin. It just hastily dismiss it with a sigh. Friends, let me close with this. I want you to really ask yourself this. Do you really want a pure heart? I hope you're thinking before you're answering. Because James tells you how you can have it. We're going to look at one more step next week that closes off this movement towards a pure heart. But he's told us three steps. And it's this, you come to the word, the mirror, and you let it shine in your heart so you can see your sin and you stay there and you look at it and you meditate on it, not so that you can feel shameful and horrible, but so that you can see how utterly horrible it is and cling to the grace of God. That's step one, that's grieving. But friends, then there's mourning. And that mourning, that godly sorrow is that I'm not letting go of this until in me is produced a hatred an eagerness to clear myself, a desire to be innocent, a movement to reconcile. I won't leave the sorrow until it moves me to change. And then there's mourning and wailing that says, but I can't do it on my own. There's a public expression. There's people that have got to usher my dead old nature to the grave and keep me from crossing the divide and picking up the old grave clothes again. So do you want a pure heart? Unless you know something I don't, I don't know of another way to get it. A heart that moves in godly sorrow toward repentance. That's a pure heart. Let's pray. Lord, we need help. This has been a hard sermon. It's been horribly hard this week thinking on all this. Lord, we need your help. Father, I pray that you would teach me. I pray that you would teach us how to walk through grief and mourning and wailing to a pure heart of repentance. We ask for help in Jesus' name. Amen.